Ladies, thank you both. That was lovely. And it's hard to argue with that, isn't it? Well, good morning, Grace. It is a privilege to be here with you today. And we have a very exciting passage of scripture to go through, and I'm excited to bring it to you. So I invite you now to turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19. Our message today is entitled, The Glory of God Declared. And while we can certainly say that's true of every passage of scripture, for some reason this one jumps out at me as just screaming God's glory to us. Let's read this together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from the end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this epic psalm, this great prayer of David to the glory of you as displayed in creation and in your word. We pray a special blessing for our pastor as he is a sent out one from this body, this group of called believers that is sent forth to the mission field to train others, to teach others who may in turn teach others and make greater disciples. We ask a blessing on him and his family as he is away and over the words we will say and speak today. Amen. This psalm was penned roughly a thousand years before Christ. And so just by way of introduction, let's fast forward a little bit to the time of Christ, actually just a little bit after, to the first century AD and the Apostle Paul. There was a town uh, in what would be modern day Turkey and potentially part of Greece where Paul had never been and the Colossian church was there. He, spelt a, he felt a special tie to this place even though he'd never been there, but it was founded by a close friend of his, Epaphras. And Paul essentially had the opportunity to write to anybody he wanted. He wrote to some very large cities, Rome, Ephesus, Philippi, but he picked the equivalent of where we live, Loudoun, when he could have written to Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, but he wrote to this small town. And he wanted to get across a few main points. One of those in particular, 
was about being grounded and settled in the faith. If he had just a few words to say to them, it was to be grounded and settled in their faith. That's how it reads in the King James. In the New King James, it's grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel in Colossians 1.23. Well, to be grounded is simply to have a foundation, something on which you can stand that cannot be moved. And to be steadfast is to be immovable, sedentary even. You are not moving away from this firm foundation. And we see this probably best exemplified in the scriptures in the case of Mark, the man who wrote our second gospel and could arguably have actually written the first one chronologically when you look at a historical timeline. Mark did not start off grounded and settled in his faith. He had a tremendous lack of confidence and a lack of peace. He left Paul and Barnabas right before their first missionary journey even started. He was picked out and chosen by the church to follow these guys and to be a companion and a fellow minister with them, but he bailed. He left the work. Acts 15.38 tells us Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, that's Mark, and had not gone with them to the work. But somewhere along the line, Mark definitely became grounded and settled in his faith, putting aside every lack of peace and every doubt. He spent a lot of time with the Apostle Peter, and it's probably a lot of Peter's words that we have in the Gospel of Mark. But Mark became grounded and settled. And Paul, at the very end of his life, when he only had Luke with him, this is the great Apostle Paul, asks for one guy. Who? Mark. He asks for Mark. 2 Timothy 4.11, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Wow. Could you imagine if you had that written of you by the Apostle Paul? Well, we can have that confidence. We can be that grounded and that steadfast. And that's what we're going to be talking about in Psalm 19, because it is one of those anchor passages that if you can get and understand what the psalmist is trying to tell us in Psalm 19, you can be absolutely assured of peace in your life in every single aspect. And what are these truths we have to be grounded in? Well, he tells us very plainly. He's got three sections here. The first one, he talks about the truth that we must believe God alone is the creator of all things. There is no alternative. It is that simple. Number two, God revealed himself in the scriptures, and so that means they are the actual words of God. That's what the psalmist is trying to get across to us. In the third section, he winds it up with the best possible way to end it, and that's a prayer. There are certain chapters of scripture, like Psalm 19, that are foundational to us being grounded and settled. And we can easily think of a few of those. We have got Genesis chapters 1 through 11. I mean, it's foundational. Our culture, when it seeks to attack something, it's going to go after Genesis 1 through 11. We have the creation narrative. We have the nature of man as sinful and rebellious. But we're also given some good things, like the family structure. We're given the first instance of God's redemptive plan when he promised to send a savior. We have lots of geological and scientific changes and uh, advents that take place there, from creation to the flood, God's saving nature, and even how he dispersed the nations at the Tower of Babel. We think of John chapter 3, where we learn clearly that salvation is started by and completed by the Spirit of God alone. 
Romans 8, another favorite of many. This chapter is a promise of eternal security in Christ. And it is a promise of the help of the Holy Spirit and tells us how he acts. Many of us love Psalm 23, where we learn of the immense comfort of the true shepherd. So that brings us to what we have today, Psalm chapter 19, a personal favorite. And this is all about how God reveals himself to us. It's essentially a musical poem of praise that is designed to be sung. And it simply talks about how God reveals himself in creation and in his holy scriptures. And it concludes with the only acceptable response, prayer and praise. It's a lot like its big brother, Psalm 119. Many of us are familiar with that. 176 verses. It's the longest chapter in certainly the Psalms and all of the Bible. And it's no accident. It happens to be in the physical middle of the scriptures as well. C.S. Lewis, uh, author of a nominally successful series of books for kids referencing the scriptures, once wrote of this, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And if you have an academic bent, this is an English teacher's dream, just chock full of imagery, colorful word choices, multiple names for God, and even clever grammatical devices. Hebrew parallelism is something that is used here. When the Jews would try to express something with an emphasis, they would repeat it and write it or re-say it in a different way. So they would give it to you twice. In English, we tend to just slap an exclamation point, use caps, or just say it louder. So we've got these three divisions from David, his contemplation on creation, on the scriptures, and in his response. And it makes sense because David, prior to being the great psalmist of Israel, or being known for it anyway, was a shepherd. And who else could have better seen the glory of God in creation than a shepherd? So let's begin now in our first section here, God's glory revealed in creation. Just take a look here at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, in every aspect, the scriptures are severe. This is not a book that should ever be read with any lightness, ever. It is severe in its grace, it is severe in its love, and it is severe in the judgment it tells us we can so gratefully avoid through Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, what is this glory? It's helpful to understand this. We're often told to glorify God, but it's helpful that we have a grasp of what God's glory is in as much as we can. So we take our cue from the only place we can, and that's his word, his total nature. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. That's his total nature. Creation shows God's perfect knowledge. That's seen, too, seen here as well as part of his glory. Consider the depth of God's knowledge by considering the intricacies of the created world. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 1 John 3.20, very simply, God knows all things. His knowledge is part of his glory. His constant presence everywhere. Jeremiah 23.24, can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? 
He's everywhere in creation. There is no place where he does not exist and is not at this very moment. Again, Psalm 139.8, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? We also see in God's glory, in creation, his absolute power. We take this one from King Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, who was most certainly not an admirer of the Israeli people and who had taken them captive. But God had done a wondrous thing in his heart and overthrew and overruled him. Daniel 4.35, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking of God. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Lamentations 3.37 through 38, a personal favorite of mine. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? It is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? I know that's a bit of a unique verse there, but it adequately describes the power of God in his absolute sovereign nature. All of these things, his constant presence, his absolute power, his beauty, his knowledge, all of this is tied up in his glory. And that is precisely what the heavens declare for us. It says next, the firmament shows his handiwork. Well, the firmament is nothing more than just the arch of the sky that's constantly over our heads. These glorious works of God are displayed in the sky as they are in all of creation. Some of us are probably familiar with the phrase, they that go down to the sea in ships, that go and do business in great waters. It's from the King James. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. His glory is shown mightily throughout all of creation, sky and sea. Verse two, this is constant. It is day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. Creation in the sky is actually preaching to us. This preaching is constant. This is no break. And as soon as you leave this preaching and watch out and go out the door, you will be again subjected to preaching, not mine, a far greater one from creation itself, declaring to you God's glory. Verses three and four, beginning of four. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This word for speech is used almost exclusively in poetry and in, and in the Psalms as this way. It is just a lovely way of describing things. And language is exactly what you think it is. It's the spoken word. There is no language that cannot hear or comprehend God's glory from creation. Every one of us hears the word of God preached from the sun, the moon, and the stars. In fact, Spurgeon has said that the sun and the moon and the stars are God's traveling preachers. And it makes sense because no matter where you are, day unto day or night unto night, you are under the preaching of creation. And this line it mentions, it's a measuring line. It's like a ruler. It is just another way of saying that God's word extends through creation over everything. In the second part of verse 4 through verse 6, in them, that is the heavens, in the heavens, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. 
Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now the psalmist pulls a nice little trick and moves away from just a general view of creation now into something very specific in the sky. He's talking very specifically about the sun. And he says he has put a place there, a tabernacle for the sun. And it's a fixed circuit that the sun travels. And certainly from the ground, it obviously appears as a circuit. That is most certainly what it is. Every place on earth is impacted by the power of God's heat source. The scriptures say there's nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 3, we heard that every language hears and all eyes see the preaching of creation. And now we see in verse 4 through 6, every place on earth feels the preaching of creation. We physically feel the heat and we know when we're in the shade. He also gives to us a couple images here. He gives to us the image of a strong man or an athlete and he also gives us a bridegroom. Well, there's tremendous excitement for both of these images to follow God's path for them, their plan. The sun comes out and he does not weary and he is ready to take on the day's challenge of giving light to all of us on earth. Same can also be said of this bridegroom. He's excited for the day. His life is now changing for the better. I promise you all who aren't married. Most certainly, and it's not just because my wife is here. But this makes sense that there's a lot of joy here because God is the one who has planned their path and their circuit. Proverbs 16:9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's a perfect image of what is going on in creation. We cannot miss the fact that Jesus is the great bridegroom as we learn in Ephesians 5 and that the church is his bride. This makes a lot of sense because it is this bridegroom who is rejoicing in this psalm. Well, rejoicing is every instance I could find in the scriptures always tied to salvation. So when you hear salvation and joy in the, in the words of God, it relates to the salvation of lost men. Just take a few verses here, Luke 10, 20. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In 1 Peter 1, 8. Though now you do not see him, that is Christ, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Philippians 1.18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Yet all of this that we see in creation is still just a mere shadow of the true father of lights, as James calls him in James 1.17. And despite all of the revelation of God and his glory that is clearly seen in creation, it cannot save us. The scriptures are emphatic on this point. We can know that God exists and we can know his glory, but it cannot save us. Why? Because in our sinful, natural, dead state, we actively deny God's glory in creation. Romans 1.18 tells us we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So even seeing the glory of God, we actively suppress the truth unless we know him and he's called us. Paul continues on a couple verses later in Romans 1.20-21. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Just what we talked about already in the psalm. 
being understood by the things that are made, his creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that's we on earth, are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, fortunately, we're not ending there, because that would be a pretty gloomy way to to end this Sunday, which finally showed some light after the rain of yesterday. But Paul does tell us later in that same book, Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that's where David picks it up next for us in verse 7. The psalmist goes from a general revelation of God in creation, where he's clearly seen, to a very specific and concrete revelation in the scriptures. And that's what we have in this book before us. Notice too, as our pastor has identified this more than one occasion, the psalmist flips or changes rather the name he's using for God. In verse one, he says God, and that's El, that is his general name. Not generic in the sense that it's just commonplace, but it's his general title as you think perhaps a captain of a ship. Well, that captain has an actual name, and we see that in verse 7, the law of the Lord. That's his covenant name, his personal name. That's Yahweh. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is just one of six titles we have for God's word and six descriptions of God's word and six actions of God's word in this section. He starts off with law. That's the fundamental one that every Jewish person would know and recognize because its actual translation is Torah. That's the Jewish law. It's the way it is, according to God, which means it's the way it is, period. And the psalmist says it is perfect. And that doesn't just mean it's flawless or without any errors. It means it is absolutely complete and absolutely sufficient. It is everything needed. Think of it this way. Every time that God speaks, there is literally nothing more to say. Even at this point, there was a lot left to be spoken in Scripture, but God wasn't ready to reveal that yet. What he had given at the time was a complete and perfect revelation. And in fact, in the end times, when the Lord is coming back, he will again speak to us. But for now, this is the scripture that we have, and it is perfect, and it is complete. Spurgeon once said as well that, Why then do people try to paint this lily and gild this refined gold? It's a great question. Jude 1.3, right at the absolute end of the New Testament, with only the Apostle John's revelation left, he tells us our faith has been delivered once for all. We can have absolute certain confidence that what is, give, <coughs> what is given here is in fact the complete word of God. Proverbs 36 tells us, do not add to his words. Awkward pause, because there's nothing to say after that. Think of the hymn that we, that we sometimes sing here, and for those of you who are fans of J. Vernon McGee and his Through the Bible, Jumping on the Bible Bus, they often sing, How Firm a Foundation at the Beginning. What a great quote in there. What more can he say to you than to you he hath said? 
a wonderful rhetorical question, which is nothing. There is nothing more for him to say, because in his wisdom, he has given all that he wants said. So we have his law, it is perfect, and it converts the soul. Well, it's not just a conversion from someone who does not know Christ to someone who does. It means that this book has the actual power to change your soul. This is not just text. This is the living and active word of God. So when you are sharing the scriptures with somebody or you're just reading by yourself or at home, this actually changes you. It converts the soul. This is a tremendous document, and it makes sense because it's the actual word of God. Next in the verse, he says, testimony. Well, these are just God's statements. And it says his testimonies are sure. Well, if something is sure, it's just rock solid. It's really a construction term, actually. It's firm and established. So what God says about himself in his word and about us is absolutely rock solid. Again, in James 1.17, from the King James here, it says there is no shadow of turning from the hymn as well. There's no shadow of turning with God. He doesn't change. His word is here permanently. We know his word reflects his character, and I love that hymn that we sing in here, Christ the sure and steady anchor. He is sure. His word is sure. And what else does it do? It makes wise the simple. Well, it's easy for us to look and say, well, somebody else is simple, but if we're really candid and we really believe the scriptures, that's all of us, because it really means in your unsaved state, we are foolish, we make bad decisions, and we're easily enticed to things that aren't true. So how does it make wise the simple? Well, it's simple, it's God's word. It can be understood by all. He makes it clear for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that it is not difficult to understand. And elsewhere in Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, he tells us to teach it to our children. And even Timothy in the New Testament, he was told by Paul, hey, Timothy, you have known the scriptures since your youth. It is for everyone to know and understand. And so if we don't understand it, that's okay. It just means we have to meditate on it. Psalm 119, verse 30. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And that is to all of us. Moving on to verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. His statutes are just simply his principles, or that which is true, his precepts. In the fact that they're right, they are straight, they are level, they are proper. If you think about it this way, God's word is always the best advice. And then what does it do? It rejoices the heart. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God's word is that which works within our soul. Remember, it is converting us. It is moving in our soul to rejoice, bring us to rejoicing. Psalm 51.12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, we know that his salvation is only spoken of and only brought through his word. So it's a perfect circle. That's where our joy comes from. And it's the only acceptable response. What else could we possibly respond with? His commandment. Well, what is that? Those are simply his directives. And it says they are pure. There is nothing defiling 
his perfect word. It is absolutely flawless. And what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. Try to contemplate this for a moment. It's a fascinating reality, but God's word enables us to understand the truths in God's word. The only way to understand his word is by his word. It enlightens the eyes. Paul described it this way in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, straight out of Psalm 19, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. God enlightens our eyes through his word. To do what? Well, to know the hope of our salvation, to know the riches of our inheritance as his children and his inheritance of us, and to know his saving power in us. The psalmist continues on with his descriptions of God's word in verse 9, 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Well, this fear, you, you may think that's a strange way to describe the scriptures, but it's actually the effect of the scriptures, so it's a perfectly legitimate way to describe the Bible. It is reverence, it is honor, it is worship of God. That is its great effect on us. And it's also clean. It says the fear of the Lord is clean. It is acceptable and flawless in God's eyes. And it generates internal holiness, internal perfection, internal cleanliness. And how long does it last? Well, it says his word endures forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Matthew 5, 17, straight from Christ, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. His word is absolutely permanent. As you can see, we're starting to stack layer on layer of the immense awesomeness of his word. The psalmist then refers to the scriptures as God's judgments. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. These are his decisions or the things he declares in the scripture. If they are true and righteous altogether, it is clear then that the entirety of the scriptures are flawless. They are a uniform whole. They represent complete harmony. Just the statistical odds of this are mind-numbing. There are 66 books, 40 plus authors in three languages written over three continents over a space of 1500 years yet they sing the same song in the same key with the exact same intonation. That's impressive. And David wrote this a thousand years before the scriptures were even finished. In verse 10, when he starts to talk about the scriptures as gold and as honey, he gives us two comparisons of great value. Gold, it's always been a precious metal. It's the subject of nearly every Western novel or every John Wayne movie you're going to watch, and honey. Well, the promised land was the land of milk and honey. Two things about these items, gold never tarnishes, and honey never goes bad. Gold has been the most precious of earthly metals since the creation. In fact, 
even before the flood, we have the existence of gold recorded for us outside the Garden of Eden. And here we have it repeated for emphasis. The psalmist describes the scriptures as gold and fine gold. He expands it. It's not just gold, it's fine gold. And this is a unique time in history because the refinement of gold had just been discovered, or God had permitted it being discovered. So David was familiar with rough-hewn gold from the ground and also familiar with the fine gold, much of what he would wind up stacking up in piles for his son Solomon to build the temple. We're willing to sacrifice everything for gold. Again, think of every Western novel. And this honey and the honeycomb he speaks of. It's not just honey, which is sweet. It's the honeycomb. And the actual Hebrew word here talks about picking up a honeycomb that is just drenched and dripping with honey. It was precious, and it lasts forever, or seemingly. We don't know otherwise. We know that honey, at least 3,000 years old, is edible. It was found in King Tut's tomb. I don't know if anyone actually tried it. I didn't look that up because, frankly, I wasn't really interested in knowing. Verse 11. This is where David concludes his thoughts on the scriptures. Moreover, by them, that is his judgments in the scripture, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And in great and in keeping them, there is great reward. A genuine focus on the scriptures is going to keep us from sin. Our church recently got involved with a recovery ministry here in Kingston. And it's interesting because a true recovery program is going to focus exclusively on the scriptures. It is going to give you the pointing, the compass arrow that goes straight to the Bible. Because that is the only way to keep us from sin. Remember, it changes the soul. It actually changes the heart. We are warned, the psalmist says, by the scriptures. Well, God lovingly provided us with his scriptures to warn us of danger. In Matthew 3, 7, this is John the Baptist throwing this out at the Pharisees. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Broad of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now that seems a bit of an odd verse to throw in here. But what John is actually telling people is, look, I know you clowns have read the scripture, but you have not been warned by it. You do not understand it. You do not care about it. So he's asking them, who warned you? It's in there, but I know you didn't pay attention to it. Colossians 1.28, this is Paul saying, him, that is Jesus, we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Warnings are a gift. Recently, we uh, had one in our household pass the permit test, the learner's permit, and many of those questions were based on warnings. Warnings, they are a blessing. I encourage all of you, 16 or thereabouts, to heed that. And in keeping these warnings, in keeping the words of God, there is great reward. Well, keeping here is not just following. This is an intense dedication to what has been written in the scriptures. Again, remember, the words of God are severe everywhere you find them. Keeping is intense focus and diligence. It is not just reading the Bible. It is contemplating it. It is studying it. Remember, it changes your soul. 
read it until that happens, because that is God's design for you. And he proves this to us in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. He couldn't be clearer on that point. A dedication to the scripture is what keeps us from sin. And it offers great reward. Well, what are those great rewards? We just mentioned one, it keeps us from sin. Again, in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It brings us closer into conformity with Christ. John 17.17, 17, these are the words of our Lord himself. Sanctify them by your truth. This is him, Jesus, praying to the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Another great reward is assurance of salvation. 1 John 2.15, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. If you by chance find yourself keeping the words of the Lord and loving his word, that's a sign that you are a believer. That is a great sign of knowing you are in Christ's kingdom. Lastly, what it does, the great reward, it empowers us to serve and it gives us confidence we have all we need. There is no need to look for any other word from the Lord, whether we think it's in our heads, hearts, dreams, whatever. 2 Timothy 3.17, Paul puts this pin into the map, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he's talking about the scriptures. It equips us to every good work. If it equips us to every good work, there is no need for anything else to do the equipping. David wraps things up for us uh, as best as he possibly can and in a perfect way that is the only acceptable response. He offers a prayer. He turns back to himself and assesses his heart and then goes to God. Verses 12 through 13. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. David so graciously shows us the only way to respond to God's glory as revealed in creation and as revealed in his word. Humble prayer and not guilt. He is not calling us to guilt. He's calling us to confession and just saying, God, I, I just give myself to you because I'm yours anyway. Complete humility is the way he approaches this, which is a good thing, too, because he makes some pretty strong demands of Almighty God. He says, cleanse me, keep back your servant, let them not have dominion over me. Those are commands, make no mistake about it. He's not saying, please. But God is asking us and demanding that we come to him in prayer. Think of Nehemiah. He was but a simple servant in the king of Persia's household, yet he made demanding prayers. God, hear me as I plead for my people. And that is precisely what David is doing here. We must pray big prayers like David, but we must do it as he did, where he says, keep back your servant. That is our role. In fact, the New Testament Greek word doulos that is used for servant or bondservant really is a slave. That's what we are to Christ, and that is a beautiful place to be. I want him to be my master and our master. 
He says, keep me, Lord, from secret sins and presumptuous sins. Well, these secret sins are ones we don't know about. And if we're really honest about it, there's lots of in our character that we don't know. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, it's only the word of God that converts and changes the soul that can draw this out and teach it to us. And then we can bring it to him for mercy. And these presumptuous sins he talks about, well, these are the serious ones. These are the ones we are aware of. These are the deliberate sins. Spurgeon said, too, that every sin is the venom of rebellion, even those secret ones. But these presumptuous ones, these deliberate ones that are premeditated and planned, this, this is a real serious issue. In the Old Testament law, Numbers 15, if you had planned something and committed some sort of sin, you were removed from camp and cut off from your family, from your people, and fellowship with God who lived there. Or if it happened to be a premeditated or planned murder, Exodus 21.4 says us the only prescription for that was death. Premeditated sins are a grave issue with God. And so David is pleading that God keeps him through his word from these sins. David ends this with verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Words and thoughts, these are the deep, affectionate musings of our heart, what's really going on in our minds and hearts. And when these are focused on the Bible, we are guaranteed spiritual success. Whenever you read success in the scriptures, it is a rare time when it's discussing something material or carnal. It is always talking about something spiritual, driven from and by the Lord. Think of the Lord talking to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, my word shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. David desperately cries out to his Lord, to his personal Lord, to Yahweh for his help. And he calls him his strength. In Hebrew, that is literally his rock on which to stand and be secure. And he finishes it by calling him his redeemer. A redeemer is someone who buys something back. And when, it's, when it is subended with a certain Hebrew ending, it means to buy back with blood. And that, my friends, is no accident, for that is Christ in exactly how he redeemed us. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that we become grounded and settled in our faith, that we believe God is the sole creator, that we believe the scriptures are the actual words of God and there is to be nothing added, and that God speaks to us constantly through creation and the Bible. Let our thoughts and words be always on you. We implore you, God, grant this, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Let's stand as we sing, come to Jesus, rest in him.